and Dime back for another recording of the Next Dimension, the DBZ podcast. Uh, as you would have heard earlier in this month, we went over the uh, remnants of the Majin Vegeta arc in the first third of the Buu Saga. So we're not going to cover any more ground this month, but we are going to cover a couple of emails that we had that would have taken a bit long to go over with in the original recording. Uh, now, the finished recording of the... Jesse and I were actually just mentioning this. The finished recording of episode 30 was about two and a half hours long. These emails won't take as long, I, I swear, but added on, added on to the uh, original content, they are we, we would have added and made it a bit, a little bit longer than you might have been happy with them downloading and us recording with, because we were recording at night. So, uh, again, I, as I mentioned before, because you not said anything yet, thanks to me babbling on, I am here with uh, Jesse. How are you doing, Jesse? I am super this uh, this lovely evening, Donovan. How are you? I am super as well. Super Saiyan! Ho, ho, ho. Ha, Yes. I set it up and knocked it out of the park. Well, listen, that might also be the only time that we uh, mention Saiyans in this episode, because this is a feedback episode, but uh, our feedback doesn't exactly include the concept of Dragon Ball Z whatsoever. Uh, these, this is more like an intermission episode, like a like a tangential episode. Yeah, it's more like a one-off, like I kind of like, you know... One and done special that you might, if you have, you know, two ninety nine, you might buy on a comic book store. But uh, which, which, these are good emails. I was hoping that we were able to cover them, you know, one way or another. Uh, Jesse and I are going to discuss and read out the emails from Daniel, our good buddy, and Alex. He was quickly trying to rival Daniel in terms of his uh, wonderful feedback. And the email content that they uh, were talking, the emails that they uh, were talking about, were basically uh, about our. ASM2 review and our April Fool's Day episode when we went over Sailor Moon. Uh, I guess Daniel t- took a while for Daniel to catch up for that one because it's now June. But um, we'll still be happy to go over that. So we'll go over his email first, and then we shall get into Alex's email, which talks about our review of Made Spider Man 2. So whenever you're ready, Jesse, we can get right into it. <clears throat> All right. Here we go. Uh, I start my thesis with yeah, 50% of this entire episode. Daniels. <laughs> Hello, Jesse and Donovan. Another great episode of the Moon Prism Podcast. Your coverage of the series from a male perspective is still top-notch, and you really get into some good analysis this time out. <laughs> Sorry I couldn't get a moon mail out in time for you to read on the episode, but since you had so many to get through last time, it's good to have an episode dedicated solely to your coverage of the series. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, I'm excited for the new series and hope to see and hear more as July comes closer. While the preview image that was released is very nice, I really want to see some animation previews to really see how this anime will visually look in comparison to the original. Sure. Have you guys had a chance to hear Memorio Clover Z's version of the classic Sailor Moon opening song, Moonlight Legend, yet? I'm a little confused if this is going to actually be the opening of the new series or not. Damn, he says the name again. <laughs> we know Mario Clover Z is doing the opening and closing song for the series, but apparently they have been covering that song even before that was announced. Either way, it's a good version of the song, and I'd be happy with it as the opening 
Though I see mixed reactions from the fandom, with some loving the reuse of the classic song, and others demanding something new and original for the series. What do you guys think? On the episodes you guys covered this time, of course, the other reason I did not email this in last time was that I've never seen the Japanese exclusive episode, Sailor Venus's Past. Minico, tra- Minico's tragic love that you guys covered, but your de- discussion definitely made me want to look that one up. Fractured Friends, on the other hand, I remember very well, and it is a really good episode. You can definitely tell that the end of the season and that the story arc is coming as the characters finally get off their butts and try to do something about Queen Burrow and the situation with Darien. And it's Serena, of all people, who comes up with the plan. The episode does really show her growth as a character and her finally showing why she could be both the leader and hero of the series. Of course, she is still her lovable goof self, so she still has a lot of room to grow. Of course, the dub exaggerates this as usual, making Sailor Moon seem more clueless and Mars even more of a bitch. <laughs> I think, in general, the dub has a tendency to over-exaggerate and dumb down the characters, but I think that this, <clears throat> but I think that this is just the route they had to go through to connect with the cartoon TV audience of the time. Have to keep in mind that this was both an early dub by a company that hadn't done many, and a time when subtlety was in cartoons was hard to come by. I don't know why you guys were so confused by the ninja being a human. This series has always had monsters of the week that were real people turned into monsters. As you guys talked about in the very first episode, when the mother of Serena's friend was turned into the very first monster Sailor Moon fought. Of course, there was just as many times that the monster of the week is just a monster, so it is confusing when you do not see the person before they become the monster of the week like this. But all that aside, this is a very good episode, and you guys made a good show covering it. Wait, what? April Fools? Oh damn! I knew it. I knew, knew I was missing something. <laughs> no, seriously, guys, a well-done prank. I always thought you should do something like this for April Fools, and not only did you pull the joke off well, but you ended up making a really good episode analyzing the series. I enjoyed hearing your thoughts on it and comparison given to DBZ. For myself, I really liked the series and was an avid watcher of it back when it was on Toonami. Of course, I am a sucker for transforming heroes and girls who kick butt. I stuck with the show till about the fourth season when the show became more about Sailor Moon's daughter than her, and I lost it. Wait, wait, she has a daughter? Yeah, um, you ever see, like, the, the little, uh, pink-haired child running around with them? Any of the material? That was her, uh, daughter, Rini. What? I don't How remember. old is she supposed to be? She, <laughs> I think, I think someone mentioned this in the past email that she's kind of, like, trunks and that, like, she kind of comes from, the, like, a... I forget if it was the future or like an alternate timeline. I forget exactly what the applications of that was. But she is like uh, Sailor Moon and Tuxedo Mask's daughter from uh, the future, and she's uh, she comes from she comes to the past for reasons. And um, I actually just remember her because I remember I really did not like her. But um, yeah, that's that's uh, I think I think in the Japanese version she like when she she eventually transforms into a Sailor Scout called it's like it's like Mini Moon. I think her. Codename is? <laughs> I'm being serious. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, Sailor Moon's daughter, then her, and I lost interest. Still, it is a series I enjoy, and I'm glad to hear you guys enjoyed what you saw of it as well. Thinking about Sailor Moon in comparison with DBZ, I find it interesting how similar a path they took in being brought over to North America. Both anime series were picked up for dubbing and sold in syndication at a time that only a handful of really successful series did and were probably the last series to do so before anime got big with the likes of Pokemon. And while both series had varying success in syndication, it was on Toonami where they hit big. 
I also really think that neither series would have had the continued success they did without the other. This is mostly conjecture based on what little I do know about Toonami. I do know, but Toonami was having success with both series. Sailor Moon had like 12 episodes that never aired in the U.S., but had already been dubbed for release in Canada, so Toonami got Cartoon Network to spend the cash to get the rights to those final episodes. Not long after these aired, Cartoon Network would make their deal to pay Funimation to start dubbing new episodes of DBZ, and I have to believe that the successes of those new Sailor Moon episodes helped convince the network that this was worth their money. And I have no doubt that it was the success of DBZ's new dubbed episodes that paved the way for Sailor Moon to get two more seasons of its series dubbed. So even though the two series are polar opposites, there are interesting, interesting, interestingly strong similarities to them and their runs, at least as far as things stateside go. One more interesting contrast with Sailor Moon and DB, Dragon Ball, is their legacy. You guys have talked a lot on the show lately about how Dragon Ball has managed to stay prominent in pop culture in Japan, and this is really right off the, just off the strength of the original series created by Toriyama. Sailor Moon has remained just as popular, but it's taken almost the exact opposite approach, approach of continuity reinventing itself for new audiences over the years. Sailor Moon starts off as a manga that was just a spin-off of another manga. Its anime is an extremely loose adaptation of the manga, and, since, and it's since been reimagined as a live-action series. It's had successful stage musicals made about it, and is now getting a brand new anime. Where Dragon Ball, up until recently anyway, has survived just off the success of the original series, be it an anime or manga form. Sailor Moon has remained almost as popular, but with different takes and adaptations of its story. I wrap up a long ranting email about a show that isn't even the real focus of your show, <laughs> with just some general quick thoughts on Sailor Moon. I really love the old dub of it, even though it's an even more controversial opinion than liking DBZ's dub, but I really enjoy the performances, and most of the dialogue changes are understandable, even the ones that try to remove some of the Japanese-ness of the anime. Though I'll say when the series came back with its newly dubbed episodes, I never could get used to the new voices, and I don't think I'm alone in that opinion. As far as over-sexualizing of the characters go in the series, I don't think it's really an issue. The uniforms and transformations are a bit fan service e, but no more than any other superheroine. And it is never really done or brought up in the series for fan service or oogling purposes, because that's not the point of it. I will say, though, that when you realize the characters are around 14 years old, it does make, it, it does make things like the outfits or romances kind of awkward, if not outright icky. But I think that is just a problem with anime in general. As an art form, it just seems very hard to accurately portray teen and preteen body types. They either look like children or they look like full-grown adults. Even DBZ has the problem as Gohan still looks like he did at four years old right up to the moment he fights Cell. <laughs> I agree with the secret identity of the Sailor Scouts. It's really hard to swallow at times when they look exactly the same in and out of costume. Nyoko Takunashi? Takeuchi's. Takeyoshi's original designs for the Scouts did give them all their own masks and different uniform designs. Any sense of gift here. But it was decided somewhere along the line that it would make them look more a team if they all had a similar look. I think the live-action series handled the secret identity thing best by changing their hairstyles and colors when they transformed. That's about all I know about the live-action series, but one of these days I'll have to try tracking it down and watching it. It seems very Power Rangers slash Super Sentai, and I find nothing wrong with that. 
And lastly, I'll just say that this is a shame we will likely never, ever get a full release of this anime on video here in the U.S. <laughs> Seeing as how the first two seasons were owned by one company and the second two were done by another. With both companies no longer in business, it's a mystery how anyone would even go about getting all these rights to the series for release. Indeed. Mm. Not to mention, Toy Animation refuses to release the last season of last season Sailor Stars, I think, anywhere outside of Japan. Reportedly out of fear of ruining the series' series family-friendly image with the season about three new scouts who are guys that transform into women's scantily clad black... <laughs> Light leather bikini. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> I hear you laughing. Uh, I'll admit that's not exactly my list of things I want to see either, but it's still a shame that the series that has had such an impact on the anime, anime in general throughout the world will likely never get a full release outside of Japan. So, yeah. <laughs> in parentheses. So, yeah, like literally a week after I wrote this announcement came out. Proving I really don't know anything. Yeah, yeah, but we should say before... Uh, a link. That um uh, a couple weeks ago it was announced that the entire Sailor Moon franchise has been licensed by Viz, and uh, since then on Hulu, I believe I'm not sure if they released all of that once, but all 200 episodes of the series has been released. Um, it's been I, be, I know it's been really subbed, but they're getting a new dub that dubs the entire series, uh, and it will be released on Hulu and on DVD eventually, as well as this new Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon series coming out. So. Yeah, how, how timely is again? And we say before, you know, we make a DBZ podcast, new DBZ content to come out. We do an episode about Sailor Moon. New Sailor Moon crap comes out. <laughs> uh. Somewhere Greg's going podcast on gargoyles. Damn it! Not for real, exactly. <laughs> so he continues, or he finishes, I guess. Anyway, great prank, guys, that turned into a great episode. I enjoyed the little trip down Sailor Road and hearing your takes on it. Donovan, your research was really well done for co- Donovan. Your research was really well done for covering just about everything that I would need to be covered. And Jesse, you brought a nice new perspective to the material. I can't wait to see if you guys try to pull anything off like this again next year. Sincerely, Daniel Yarbrough. P.S. Donovan, you mentioned wondering if Saban had any hand in the dubbing of Sailor Moon. I think I can safely say no, they didn't. But they did make a pitch for bringing the series over from Japan. Their idea, however, was to combine live-action human girls with fighting animated footage, footage of Sailor Scouts. Here's a link. And he sends a link. <clears throat> Have you seen that? Uh, no, I did not watch it. <laughs> You're a better man for not doing that. <laughs> it really is awful. I might include the theme. But thank you very much, Daniel, for... Uh, and no, I mean, I, we always kind of like tease you about the length of your emails, but that was a very, very nice glowing response to our uh, April Fool's episode, so we appreciate that. <clears throat> I, I think that the episode has been well received, so uh, I uh, I'd like to try something, and you know, for the future episode. I don't know what yet, uh, what Don will think up this year, but or next year. Oh yeah, we'll definitely be be uh, ending up crossing April again, so I might have to like uh, do something. Of course, now it'll be predictable if I do anything. But uh, no, yeah, I mean, I I, I enjoyed this. Too. I, I think I said before, but like that that episode uh, ranks up there with one of my favorite recordings for next dimension effort because it was it was a lot of fun <laughs> switching gears on that one to that and um i'm glad i'm glad that like my research paid off because i felt that like at times i was i was like yeah i don't want to come off bsing this so 
or the, the night before. I felt the same way. I was like, man, am I just am I just blowing smoke? No, but no, I I, I did that. I've heard, I've heard that episode like about three times since we released it. So I'm glad that uh, others have enjoyed it as well. And um, he 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 mentioned one thing that I wanted to kind of like you know uh, elaborate on. It was very. We appreciate the information on um, uh, Sailor Moon's release history and dubbing history. Because I, I don't think I knew about that. I mean, it's funny because I remember. When it was on Toonami, I wasn't watching it. I mean, I, I remember I was watching Dragon Ball Z instead. <laughs> so uh, it's ironic that like it it it's, it can be seen that it was it got more popular when it was on Toonami. I know that like I do I do remember that it released episodes had not been seen before at that point. But um, gosh, I trying to remember what I wanted to mention. Um, oh, I, I think it was about like the uh, the fan service stuff. I don't. I mean, we, we mentioned this before in the episode. I don't really consider any bit of the show. Fan service. I guess there's, a, there's, a, I mean, there's a natural thing of like they're in short skirts and stuff, and some of the transformation sequences are a bit leery. But, and I'm pretty sure that um, uh, Takeuchi has mentioned as much that like the anime had a bit more of a male gaze than her original comic book did. But by and large, I mean, I don't, I don't think this, this show. I, th- I always say that Dragon Ball has more fan service than Dragon Ball Z, uh, than uh, Sailor Moon does, um, especially at the beginning, really. But like, um. I don't, I don't think that it's really <laughs> an issue. <laughs> uh, Jesse saw. Uh, uh, I came in. I came in personal contact with with some of that. The first <laughs> sort of Dragon Ball. <laughs> Bulma wants uh, the Dra- Goku's Dragon Ball. He says, "Oh, if you give me the Dragon Ball, then I'll give you a piece <laughs> of my behind." And <laughs> I love that moment. <laughs> the first episode, mind you, the very first chapter. But um. No, yeah, I don't think that. I, I mean, I don't really thought that. Like yeah. somewhere, Yoshi uh, Roshi is sensing power levels, <laughs> as well as other things rising. But um, no, I, I really, I, I never thought that it was ever a big deal. That, uh, even, even like again, like even with the characters like Sailor, uh, no, uh, Sailor Neptune and uh, Uranus, with the relationship, I never thought it was ever like done for like you know perverted reasons, because, you know, again, we mentioned this before, not to get too much into it, but this show was really is, you know, a product by girls, uh, exclusively, not exclusively, but, you know, primarily for girls, and um, they don't, it, even through these uh, cartoon series, it doesn't tend to really get much into any sort of, like, negative anime stereotypes in terms of, like, you know, seeing women in, in certain positions. That being said, we should probably mention that, like, um, I do know that, like, the new series coming out has shown images of the, you know, how, how it's going to look, how it's different from the original anime. And I remember you said that you've seen them, Jesse, because you remember that uh, your girlfriend, April, didn't like them? <laughs> so the public weird. Yeah, she did, she did not care about She did not care for them. Right. I, did, I do remember that. I will say, though, that, like, from what I've seen of the manga, it definitely does look a lot more like the manga because their eyes are a lot bigger, and they're a lot skinnier, and, like, their, their, their limbs are a bit kind of threadbare. So there's that going for it, but I, I suppose it is a def- it's a seat change because uh, the original anime was such a product of its time in terms of like, 90s animation. But uh, be that as it may, yeah, I don't think there's any from you know just from what I've seen, from what I remember, and what we watched, I didn't see any you know overt fan fan services or like, overt sexualization of these characters. I mean, yeah, yeah, the, you know they, they wore skirts and they show they show some skin, but at the same time, like, and this is an argument I'll make. For anything, you know, comic books get a bad rap of that. It's like, well, you also have guys running around in tights with over, you know, over stylized bodies that are impossible too. You know, Dragon Ball, you've got guys, you know, running around with biceps bulging and a lot of times shirtless. It's like that's just kind of the expectation to an extent. 
Yeah. Do these characters have to be in skirts? No, but, I mean, it is a uniform, and, and it does kind of harken back to that, which, which you would see in Japan, much obviously much more common than in America. So over here, it's, it stands out probably a lot more than it would over there. Yeah, I think that they, they, they generally their their costumes, and I'm actually looking at the the uh, image now of the original costume designs, the link that he sent, that GIF, where like you have uh like they are a bit more differentiated, and like the costume designs, I mean they're they're really about as skimpy as Supergirl's costume to be honest. I mean they have they have skirts, big up and whoop, you know. I, I never really, uh, even when I was younger, that never like you know like like lit my fire or anything like that. So like again, I do I do like I do enjoy the fact generally that they all have different. Designs for their shoes because I like the fact that you have one serious guy that has boots, another one has high heels, another one has like a sort of like you know spats and stuff. So I think that's just cool. But uh, nah, I never really, I really don't. I, I think, and I think that there was a lot of that talking point that we made was a bit more of a reaction to the nostalgia critic haranguing them for that, which I think was large, uninformed, and ignorant. But uh, we've we've had that battle since. Um, <clears throat> and as far as <clears throat> I what did what what point was I going to talk on? Crap. The designs, the uh, dubbing, the sexualization, the uh, no, 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 no. you mentioned it around the, when you started talking about the fan service, right? Like the, the, skirts, the transformation sequences, the relationships. Aha, the relationships. Yeah, there, you go. there we go. Trying yeah, to help you out there, <laughs> ladies, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Don's for. <laughs> no, uh, he, you know, he mentions. The characters are not written like fourteen-year-olds, or, or that characters either are young or or adults, or children or adults. I think that's probably just a problem most writers have. You can either write, you know, children or adults. It's it's a lot harder to nail down preteen or teenage characters because they can. I think they can often come off as stereotypes, and. Often the, the yeah the tropes are you get you get teenage characters who are written like adults unbelievably. Oh yeah, he was talking so, about they don't look like they're like, they don't look like they're preteens or teenagers. They're supposed to be like at least in the series starts off like fourteen year olds. They don't really look like they do. Oh, is he saying just like the physical like designs of them? Yeah, I, th- I think that's I, I think that's what he meant. <laughs> that is what Daniel oh, okay. wrote there. Which again, like you know, I mean, like uh, uh. I would I would say that like I mean obviously when the series gets on later on from what I remember from what I've read about it it does get into a bit more heavy stuff, um, but I mean again with the, with the character of Sailor Moon who's you know kind of flighty initially and she kind of grows to be a bit stronger much more of a stronger character that's your, your typical coming of age story of any character you know Spider Man is a good example of like you know that's why he started off selfish and kind of bitter he kind of grew up into a lot more of a noble character so you have that to come I agree. I do think that the two shows even inadvertently do owe uh, to the other for some of their success, just just in keeping anime pop culture around the time mm-hmm. and keeping that whole genre relevant. Because, I mean, those two, are, they are the two biggest shows known from that genre. Probably still, other than maybe Pokemon, oh, well, definitely Pokemon and maybe uh, Yu-Gi-Oh!, they're probably the biggest animes still known to this day, you know, yeah. over in America, or in North America, anyway. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I mean there's sort of a certain generation. I mean, that now you have other shows, like, I know that, like, the big three are Naruto, One Piece, and Bleach, and I've said that before, but, like, I know those are the big ones today, but from what I've seen, they don't, they still don't compare to, like, 
when in their heydays, Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon were like the top. And then you also have like the franchises like Pokemon, Gundam, uh, even other stuff like, you know, Digimon, Monster Hunter. Um, and like, you know, there's other. Digimon. There's a, I, I actually like Digimon. I like Digimon, but I didn't watch after the second season because it started to change up the series. Um, but I was going to say that like, uh, they had a, they, well, crap. There's other franchises in Japan that I know are, are very popular. Like, I think that the longest-running series of all time is Doraemon, which has never been brought over to America, as far as I'm aware. Um, Detective Conan, which was brought over to America, was shown on Adult Swim called Case Closed, which I enjoyed. Which is like, you know, and those are like those have been going on for like over 20 years. Hajime no Ippo is a manga series, which I actually read, uh, which is a boxing series that uh, has been out since 1989 and is still going. Over a thousand chapters is pretty cool. But like, I mean. Even though they're, they're, they're pretty long, like, like Sailor Moon and the DBZ are just, the impact they made just cannot be overstated. Just can't. Those were, those are the faces of anime. Some people say that those are like bad examples of them because they are kind of like geared towards a adolescent audience. But, you know, I, we, we've made a whole show about DBZ. We've done 30 episodes about it. We talked about Sailor Moon and its merits. There aren't, you know, there's a lot more to them than what people might perceive just by first glance. Um... Was, is it common for animes to run that long? Or, I mean, not mangas to run that long? You know, I think it's happening now more so uh, than it used to. Because, again, I remember that Dragon Ball Z, it was the longer, one of the more longer-running series. I mean, not at the time, but, like, uh, at the time, like, you know, I think Doraemon and Dixon uh, beat it. But, like, uh, now it's, I mean, it's outclassed by a few. There's a list on Wikipedia that has the longest-running franchises. And it's like, the, it's like the top 100, top 50 list. I think DBC cracks up, but it's near the lower end of it. Um, because I get the idea that while you know um, we're familiar with how American comic books work, they don't keep the same creators generally, and it doesn't seem like their stories are as tight as like the Dragon Ball manga is. Yeah, and that could be just because of one one type, one creator throughout the entire entirety of the series. But it's, it's interesting to see how they the two approaches to a comic differ. Well, it's interesting because one thing that always, like, when I was younger, that always struck me the difference between, like, you know, comic books in the West and anime and manga in, in the East is that, like... You read them backwards? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but also, like, they always seem, like, finite. Like, there always was an ending to get towards. Like, Dragon Ball ended. Sailor Moon ended. You know, um, I mean, some some don't, like, Death Conan, but some, but most, pretty much all of them do. Like, like 98% of them did. Like, Death Note ended. So, like, um, whereas, like, you know, Spider-Man's still going on, Batman's still going on, that kind of stuff, there's no uh, large ending unless you want to count continuities. Um, so that was always kind of interesting to me that, like... Do you think that's a better approach? I, you know what? I actually do like the fact that there is an end to reach in these series. and that Like, once you reach them, you kind of, like, dust your hands and say, well, that's that story, and I enjoyed it, and these are the parts I enjoyed about it the most and the least... And it's where it ends. I do. I mean, there's some some people might not the way how how it, it ends, but it's like a television show. You, you enjoy the ride, and I think that like there there are, honestly is there a time where I would like to see Spider Man and just to see where it ends up. And it, there's an there's definitely a hook to that, which I think that um now obviously I think that marketing is a lot different here than it might be uh in in uh, Japan yeah. where like you know, like the marketing like like Disney uh, Warner Brothers uh, all those people say you cannot possibly end it because we need to, we need to milk this, but like. You know, things change. You might, who knows how things will end up like 30 years from now or not? Well, it seems like the, you know, the Sailor Moon approach of ending a continuity and starting you know, again, that, I mean, that could work. I'd, uh, I'm torn about it because, obviously, as a comic book fan, I love that a, you know, a character continues and we mm-hmm. get more stories with them. Yeah. 
but I'm not I'm not necessarily opposed to new adaptations or, or, or the end of a story, you know. Right. But yeah, it's I think it's I, I like that we get both types of storytelling because I think each has their own strengths. Because you can, you know, over in the U.S., you can follow a character your entire life, and you can you can almost pass that character along to your, you know, your children. Or like in my instance, I I passed all my comic books on to my nephew. Uh-huh. And he's, you know, he's reading some of the comics I grew up with, and that's that's pretty cool. And I can look at him and go, oh yeah, well I remember when that happened, when that, you know, when that that storyline affected Spider-Man, you know. And here's something else that paid off to that later on. That's a cool approach, but ultimately I do think that it diminishes, or it, or it, I guess it presents a a lot n- newer set of challenges to writers to continue working in that time or in that. Uh, Ever, you know, ever growing continuity and ever never ending storyline. You know, I think I might I might prefer an, a finite storyline more so because if you look at the continuities of characters like Spider Man, say, well, this is the time he graduated high school. This is the time where his uh, girlfriend died. This is the time where he got married. This is the time where he lost his job. Whatever. There, there are points where you can see, like you know, that meant something to that character. So when there's an ending point, you can they they feel they they relate more so rather than get lost in the stream of stories that just keep on popping out endlessly. Like if um, I mean I don't I don't know it's like I don't want to compare it to news strips exactly but like like peanuts or uh the far side or whatever not the far side has a continuity but like um if 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 like they ever ended you know whatever happened like you know like, like the first time uh, Lucy took the ball from Charlie Charlie Brown that would mean more and like I, I think that like you know it's more interesting when when the stories that we enjoy are. Any any way to perform a bit more like our lives because our lives are going to end sometimes. It, it, it is fiction, but you know, I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going with that. I agree, and, and definitely, it does lose some of the impact when you have to rearrange so much of the story to continue, and yet to continue continue doing it, and you have to yeah, it becomes repetitive, and it, it, every story can't be impactful to the character's life because. Obviously, you're writing an issue a month for 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. So I would, uh, I'd love to see them try, you know, try maybe a more western or more eastern approach. And I know they have, you know, with limited series and such. But. Yeah, some, some some series do have endings like, um, like uh, Irredeemable had an ending, and some, some 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 stories that aren't really mainstream do have endings. But the big oh, ones. Irredeemable was awesome. I you know I read the first trade of that and I was like I, I don't know if I can read more of this it was good but it was so damn heavy well, I'm, I'm not yeah it, it is very very dense I read that and Incorruptible the spinoff they were both pretty good I'm interested in reading Incorruptible not read that yet but um thank you very much Daniel for that one as always uh, our next email is from Alex Evangelio referring to our ASM2 review Alex reads Dear Don Jesse and I suppose Stella as well. This is the second month in a row we've had a non-DBC episode of you guys, and it's not the last. <laughs> Evidently, that next dimension leads to all other comic book and manga universes. I'm half expecting to see an episode covering something about Judge Dredd, because we need to hit every continent. I might hit up uh, <laughs> Gerard and Jason for that one. But seriously, it was cool hearing Stella after a long time and getting your thoughts on ASM2. I was debating with myself about asking you guys about it in my last email, but I thought it, could be, it would be better if I, to save it for Clone Star Chronicles or the Spectacular Radio Podcast, since it wasn't DBZ related. As for my two cents on the movie, i got to say, I appreciate that the first ASM movie was good, but I personally hated it at first. Since then, I've become more open to it. 
what really sunk it for me wasn't the movie itself so much as a lot of people started hate, to hate on the Raymond movies because there was a new movie coming out, sometimes in, by engaging in revisionism. As for the sequel, I feel that as a movie and as a story, it's not as good or well-constructed as ASM-1. And, or I guess he's not the sequel. As ASM-1, it has a lot of flaws. And yet, for some reason, I like this one much more than the first, and I don't know why. It just resonated with me more, I guess. Resonated with me more, I guess. I think it might have been the tone of the movie. It felt closer to a comic book movie, and it wasn't trying to be pseudo-realistic as the first one. While the first film felt like it was trying to be closer to the quasi-realism of the Nolan Batman movies, this one felt like the tone was closer to the Marvel Studios movies, which have struck a good balance between realism and the fun, goofy, comic booky tropes from the source material. For me, I think Spider-Man 2 is the best Spider-Man movie overall, but in terms of my professional or my personal favorites, it'd be Spider-Man 3 at the, at the number 5, then ASM 1, then ASM 2, and Spider-Man 2 at the very top of the film. Very top, at the very top. Stella mentioned, um, I don't know, I might hit this point up one by one. Uh, have you thought any more in terms of how you would rank these, Jesse? Uh, I think it holds. I, what I had chosen still holds. That this is my favorite Spider-Man film. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I still don't think it's necessarily the most well-made, but it's the one that I enjoyed for the character alone the most out of that. Uh, I would refer to everybody to um, Earth2.net, and I forget which episode it was, but it's, an, it's a website I listen to, a great, great host of podcasts, and, um, and their Comic Relief podcast, Ian Wilson. I mean, I very much respect and admire and sometimes rip off <laughs> uh, Review Days and 2, and... Um, and I was talking to him in the feedback thread for that one, and he mentioned that like he might rate the movies. If he he's, he had said that if he was going to give a child uh, and introduce him to Spider-Man through the movies, he would give them Spider-Man one, Spider-Man two, and then ASM two. And he said that like he thinks that Spider-Man, the Raimi films did their origin better, and I would agree with that. And that like um I def- I really enjoy ASM ASM two, and I really enjoy what Andrew Garfield and Mark Webb are doing. I do think though that the Raimi films have have done aspects of the series the character a bit better, but that's not that's not saying that Mark Webb got it so, so, so wrong. It's just a personal preference, but I would have a Spider-Man 2 at the top, and after that, it's a toss between ASM 2 and Spider-Man 1. I want to think about that. I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, he continues, Someone mentioned that this movie was darker, and I kind of agree and disagree. It was darker because of Gwen's death and Harry's corruption, but it was less dark because I felt that, frankly, there there's a lot more camp at times, especially with the ending with the kid and the rhino. I don't know if I said the overall theme of the movie was human relationships. I do agree with Stella's observation, though, about how in the movie Peter is depicted as needing relationships. It's one of the reasons why I roll my eyes at some fans who claim that if Peter was really responsible, he'd cut off all ties with other people to avoid getting, getting hurt. Yeah, I don't really. <laughs> that is a bit too extreme myself. I disagree with Stella about the soundtrack because I adored it. Whilst the soundtrack telegraphing to Electro's thoughts was unexpected, I think it was actually a unique way of getting into his head. I just saw it as Electro himself thinking those things, and since they were, they were part of the music, you, under, you understood how all over the place and erratic his thoughts were. I agree with that in the comics, Peter's parents are basically unimportant. To me, Peter sees May and Ben as his parents and doesn't feel like he's lost anything. In the movies, however, I give the movie slack because it had to resolve the dangling plot thread about the parents. At the same time, I feel it was a mistake to focus upon them. And like Don, I think it seriously, seriously detracted from Uncle Ben, who was barely mentioned. And their subplot was just kind of pointless, to be honest. I like that the movie was less pseudo-serious, realistic, than the first one, and actually had a step back towards the Raimi, Raimi film's tone. But even still, I felt the science train was a bit ridiculous and jarring. I didn't really have a problem with the the... 
science train myself, but I guess some people did. Yeah, I don't I don't see why he got so much hate. Like, yeah, I don't I don't know. I I didn't bother me as much. I get I get the I get the thing that like you know would the computer really work so many years later? But but you know it's it's a movie, so I thought yeah, like you know you kind of need that to work. Yeah, that's one of the things that. It's like, yeah, could could he have done that? Could he have had the, you know, uploading the video over, like, essentially AOL in the early 90s? Probably not, but I'm not going to, you know, nitpick about it because it is a movie. And you could just say that, oh, well, he had wireless internet, you know, way before most people did because he worked for Oscorp. Yeah, for real. Exactly. I mean, I'm not crazy about that kind of stuff. But I, don't, I think in terms of, like, like, sense, it makes about as much sense as, as a movie needs it to make. <coughs> I gotta disagree with you guys on that the burglar was akin to Joe Chill in Batman in that he doesn't need to be caught. Inversion of the story and its integral moment for Peter's character and generating guilt for him. Also, the movie's, movie versus canon, Uncle Ben's killer was apparently dealt with in one of the ASM video games. So that's a plot thread, plot thread that, that might not come to be used in future movies. Wait, did he say that he agrees or disagrees? He. I, I, forget, I think it was Stella. I forgot it was, you were Stella that said that like the burglar was akin to Joe Chill. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with okay, that. Okay, yeah, I, I thought that the burglar being caught was kind of unimportant to the character. And as far as the video games go, I know that the second film, or the the original game, the ASM1 game came out and was supposed to be quote-unquote canon. Uh, and then the second movie came out and uncanonized that. <laughs> the second game has just been straight up told to be like, oh, an alternate, you know, continuation of the story. I do know that, yeah, that you can face the burglar in the second game, um, which I didn't like the fact that he didn't catch him because that because that, that led him to, to look for him, and they kind of really muddied up the origin. But now that, like, you know, so much time has passed, I don't, I'm not sure if I want to see them get back to that because they'll be kind of distracting towards other stuff. So... I really think that they kind of botched the origin, unfortunately. I'm glad that, like, in some universe it is taken care of, I suppose. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think the Raimi films did do a very good job on the origin. I think they may have gotten a little too tied up in trying to do differently. The Sandman, yeah. No, I I mean, this this film. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I forget the Sandman is a part of that at all. What what are you talking about? What? No, yeah, I think that this film, they tried to do too much, which is a shame because I think you had two good actors there with Martin Sheen and Andrew Garfield, who, if given something that was a little, just a little, like a little, little tighter, like a little more, just more editing and more writing to get it all cohesive, it could have been really, really awesome. And it, it just wasn't, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I don't get the sense that Peter felt that he was responsible for Uncle Ben's death in that movie, which is the biggest mistake you can make, really. They, they kind of like, like, Skate around it to where you, you don't think about it too much, but after you, after I got out of that film, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, oh no, I have the hiccups now. I both agree and dis- <laughs> okay. I both agree and disagree with Jesse about Venom. I don't think he works best as a good crap. <laughs> I don't think he works best as a good guy alongside Spidey. But I three hundred percent back him up about how Eddie Brock is Venom. And his idea, his idea of setting up the Sinister Six in their own movie before bringing them into ASM three or four is brilliant. Wait, wait, did I say that Venom works best as a good guy? I don't remember you saying that. Hmm. If I um, did, then I I was mistaken. I think he works best. I think Eddie Brock works best as a misunderstood character. Granted, a bad guy, but still a not a like completely evil Norman Osborn type character. Yeah, I like it when he thinks that he's doing the right thing, but he clearly isn't. 
like I that's why I, I I'm so I was so disappointed with Spider-Man three because you had Topher Grace set up as what's that destroying villain. Well, yeah, but like you know, in the interviews and everything, he said he wants to he wanted to be the anti Peter Parker, like all the power and none of the responsibility. You know, like the the flip side of that of that character, and they didn't deliver on that promise at all. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I don't hate Spider-Man three personally, but like um. There's, I, I'll happily say that there's a lot of things wrong with that, and Venom was a big part of what was wrong, what was wrong with it. Because I love Venom. Plus, I don't think it helps that if you cast an actor to be the villain who is a better Spider-Man than your own Spider-Man. Like he, he could, he could have been a much better Spider-Man than Tobey Maguire. Um, maybe. That's my, that's my opinion. What are your thoughts about Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man? Now that we're at the end of that. Here's a tangent, but like uh, now, now that we're you know have seen the beginning, middle, end of his tenure, uh, overall, how would you? I mean, just not, not even comparing him to Garfield, but like, how would you like say that you've enjoyed or just not enjoyed his uh, Spider-Man portrayal? Uh, well, I do just want to say again that I, I don't I don't tend on hate on those films, but it's it, it's not even necessarily that I dislike them. I just I like what we've been given in this series more. Like this version of Spider-Man more, so if that comes off like, oh, you know, he's bashing on these, it's not necessarily that because these are a big part of my childhood too. Mm-hmm. But I think he plays a great Ditko Spider-Man, like a Ditko or Ditko High School Peter Parker. But he, I, it seems like he lost interest in the character and lost interest in having fun playing the character after the first movie. Yeah, I, I, I get a sense that, like, I've always kind of felt that, like, well, I say always, but, like, after, I think by the third one, I kind of felt that uh, he was kind of, like, in my opinion, at least, Michael Keaton's Batman, in that, like, while it's it's really good when you first see it, uh, as time goes on, you do wish that you got more out of it, and it doesn't really match the, the version of the character in your head. Yeah, there's more potential there than what you're given. Right, and, and, and apparently, like, you know, that was the first Spider-Man on, on, a, on the big screen, so we can't say that, like, you know, at no point was anybody demanding that that it's better. That, I remember people loved him at the time. But now that like we've seen Andrew Garfield, which I'm, which I really do prefer more. Um, to me, it was always, it was always the fact that Tobey Maguire was, was so mousy as Peter Parker. I mean, I'm sorry that like I don't care, you know, how shy he was as before he has powers. Peter Parker just is not that much of a wuss uh, as as Peter Parker dies as when, he, when he's already Spider-Man, and that that just, that just felt like Sam Raimi got really comfortable seeing writing for that character that like it, it didn't really gel for me yeah that's the thing is like he, he doesn't get past that initial point it's like okay this is where he starts well what, where does he get to develop into the character I know yeah but wait it, so hold on wait backtrack er, you got beef with Keaton man oh <laughs> um, I, I don't dislike Michael Keaton I, I mean I, I didn't like how he's written but I mean I mean there are aspects Kill, randomly killing people in the beginning of Batman Returns yeah, fuck that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a big Batman fan, and I hate that. But um, that movie is not aged well. Well, it, it just like seeing it again after being an adult. It's like this is a terrible Batman movie. Yeah, I don't like that movie. Josh, that's te- Josh's favorite Batman movie. So we, me and him typically like you know have a Star Trek level duel over it. But uh, <laughs> um, I mean Keaton. <laughs> even further off, Jeff, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Michael Keaton. I thought that he was good as Batman. But like it was more, it was it was pretty much mostly with how he was written. I don't I don't think anything that Keaton did was wrong at all. You know, besides them telling him to like, you know swing upside down as though he were a bat, <laughs> which made no sense. 
It was it was usually like how how Sam Ham and other people wrote him, but Keaton, Keaton's a brilliant actor. I thought he was a really good Batman. I thought it was a very interesting Batman in that like there's some aspects to his like my, uh, Bruce Wayne personality, which you've not seen before or since, which I enjoyed. But um, it was simply to do with the writing more so than anything. But so yeah, I uh, I really loved his portrayal of Bruce Wayne, which is what I thought kind of makes his character that. Which Kevin Conroy does well. There's a very distinct. There's like three versions, you know. There's it's Bruce Wayne, the facade. There's Batman, and then there's the kid that grew up with Alfred. Exactly, exactly. And I thought he nailed that part. So that's why I'm not too keen on Christian Bale because he, as good an actor as he is, he he seemed to walk through that role a lot. I might disagree. You don't, you don't like those movies, do you? <laughs> I, I, I do. I think he's surrounded by better actors than him. Or not necessarily better. I think he's surrounded by actors who are putting more in than he is. And that kind of brings up his performance. I'm going to talk about this later on. Uh, <laughs> I would... I would... I think... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, might, I might agree and disagree with you simultaneously. But, I mean, I, mean, I find... I. I generally like most of the actors who have played Batman to to some extent. I didn't hate yeah. Val Kilmer. I even thought that George Clooney had like one good scene in that movie that he was in as Bruce Wayne. And well, Adam West is just awesome. Like he played a perfect Batman for what was written for him. <laughs> he was a trendsetter. Adam West. Adam West. Well, I mean, I'll also say too that like I don't think I don't think I've walked away from any Batman film saying God Batman was mis- miscast. Well, maybe Crisis of Two Earths, <laughs> but that's really, and I love that movie. But I, the the voice actor was the Baldwin brother that voiced Batman wasn't the best. But, even but so, have you ever walked out of a Batman movie saying, like, like when you walked out of Iron Man and said that's Iron Man? Have you ever said that that's Batman? Uh, <laughs> with Batman Begins, I did. <laughs> I will say that. Um, but you know, <laughs> he, he never. He, to me, he just he never he never showed the type of intellect and detective. Detecting skills you would expect out of Batman. I'd say we got it in Rises, uh, and even in The Dark Knight, where he does his own investigating. I, I think they're kind of far and few between, but it's there. It's like you, you can't say that 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 Burton's Batman wasn't a detective because right up front he figures out how the Joker's toxin gets into people's uh, products. But like it's that's like the only time you kind of see that. And like with the, the Nolan Batman, you see him doing detective-ish stuff. Actually, that's a that's a good analogy here. I'll think I, I I like the I like Bale as Batman as much as I like McGuire as Spider Man. In that I like where the characters started, but they didn't end up at a place that I, where I thought the characters. Okay, yeah, that, that's 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 more than fair. I, I, I think that's, that's a good analysis. Yeah. I, I, I do I do I really like Christian Bale as Batman, but you know. Kevin Conroy's my guy, so there's that. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. On equal, on equal ground. Where was I? <laughs> uh, uh, I think it was gone. <laughs> you, 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 Michael Keaton brought it out in you. Uh, you asked about my opinion on McGuire as Spider-Man, and then we tangent. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I, think, I think I've said mine as well. I mean, yeah, I, I... I by the end of the initial uh, Sam Raimi series, I got the sense that, like, uh, I wanted more from his Spider-Man. Because um, people to the day still like, you know, oh, well, Spider-Man's a nerdy guy. Yeah, he is, but to a point, you know. And um, Tim McGuire himself seems, seems like a guy who, like, 
he you know he took the job. He enjoyed the character. He, I, I know that he read the first like sixty or so issues of Spider-Man to get into the character's head. Uh, but I think that like as as an actor, he didn't want to move on while he was filming Spider-Man three. And you can't blame him for that. You know, I'm not I'm not gonna be mad at him. Like you know, I'm not. He talked to Michael Bailey. He would thought that that uh, that Tobey Wire burn a cross on his lawn. He really doesn't like him. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, there are, you do you do want as a fan. For the characters that you know, the actors that are portraying your favorite character to enjoy the character as much as you do, and I think Tom McGuire does not have as much time for that, which you know, it kind of sucks, but you can't blame him because he's you know, he's, people are people. So, whereas Andrew Garfield clearly loves Spider-Man as a character and, and being the character, so that, that that goes a long way towards ingratiating him towards a fan base. Uh, I've heard somebody say, yeah, that he ingratiates himself and that. He takes the role as serious as Christopher Reeve took the role of Superman, in that it is a role model for children, and some, and it's essentially you know like their their hero on the screen, and I can agree with that. Like, you know, I know Christopher Reeve was big, you know very much that way. George Reeve in the old Superman show was yes. was very big on that. Yes. You know, just kind of realizing the impact you have on on peop- on the younger generation who watch their shows. Or watch those shows in his instance, movies in, in, in the other instances. But So I think that's one good thing that, that Garfield does. And that is because, you know, he is a big fan himself. I mean, there was that story that came out uh, a few weeks ago where he went to, like, a school or some sort of, like, children's uh, get-together as Spider-Man and hung out with him the entire day as Spider-Man. I'm sorry. That is so awesome. <laughs> that is yeah, like, so cool. <laughs> It's like this is like in that that was after the movie came out. So it's yeah, not, it's not, he, had, he had nothing else to do, uh, or honestly, do and he had nothing else to, like you know prove or you know uh, market or promote. He just like you know, and I've heard that that's not the only time he's done that. Like he's very very generous with his time. Like he doesn't he, he doesn't even see the guys like you know, oi, I'm not Spider Man. Can't you leave me alone? I'm an actor. Like he he is. He does recognize how I mean his first appearance at Comic Con, cosplaying as Spider Man, you know, revealing was him. You know, him showing up at Comic Con last year, like you know, in the costume. I mean, he's in terms of like in terms of an actor portraying the character, like you know, as the guy who happens to be Spider Man. He's he's my favorite. Uh, um, not counting Christopher Daniel Fox, of course. <laughs> we really yeah. have to a caveat for the voice actors. I say that that would be. Uh... C- CDB, not CDB, mechanic. absolutely. Listen to uh, our commentaries on uh, Spidey-2.com as we, we're getting into that. Um, Alice continues. <laughs> um, Alice says, I think Jesse was correct in saying that the Raimi movies have dated as a consequence of being made at a time when CGI wasn't as good as it is now. However, I disagree with some folks who criticize the movie for that. It was good at the time, and the movie was well-received. The fact that this better CGI came out later can't retroactively make the whole film bad. I mean, Blade 2 came out the same year and had a worse CGI. I don't see many people dissing that movie. I just like Blade 1 better. Um, yeah. As also, also, like Jesse said, the Raimi movies were indeed nostalgic, but I don't think that that's a bad thing at all. I mean, Batman 1989 looked like it was made in the 1930s, and the 1978 Superman movie looks obviously dated compared to what the more modern, super, modern superhero movies. But no movie can be made with the idea of what, a future, what future audiences will enjoy in mind. You kind of have to judge them in context. And in terms of being a more Silver Age super, uh, Spider-Man movie, or Spider-Man movies, I don't see that as an inherently bad thing. It's just being based upon original source material, whereas the new movies are based upon more modern material, and who knows, in decades' time, maybe they will seem to be too nostalgic. 
Uh, yeah, we read that like the Rainbow films are kind of Silver Age and classic. The uh, web films are more modern and contemporary. And yeah, and I don't, I don't think it's just that like in ten years we'll think, oh, the web films are you know dated. I think they would still come off as more modern, just based on the, the way the story is presented and the way the characters are presented. Yeah, because I still think that the Remy films are are sixties Spider-Man stories told in modern day. Just just the the tone of them. Yeah, this is just a, this is not a tension, but just the way every character is written. Not just Jameson and the villains, but like every character, Mary Jane, Harry, Peter. You know, there there's like there are times where it's very crowded. Like you know, they'll they'll talk with normal people, but there's also times where like they're kind of being written kind of broadly. And I, I, I'm not mean that it's like, like, this is why it sucks. I mean that it's like, you know, that's the, that's the kind of tone and feel that Sam Raimi was going for. And it works. I mean, like, you know, people love Spider-Man 2. Everyone loves Spider-Man 2. Who doesn't love Spider-Man 2? So it's not like, you know, it's, 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 uh, or it's an explanation as to why it's not good. It's just a, it's an explanation as to why something is more so than, like, you know, whether it's good or bad. Yeah, and I think that's, that's more the, of, of what I was trying to say about, you know, it being, it came coming out when it did uh, during the time of the superhero movies. Like that was the approach you pretty much had to take to make a Spider-Man film work at the time. Like as far as the studios was concerned, that was the pitch you had to throw them. Just like you know, oh, the X-Men have to be in leather. Like well, we got to, you know, we got to make this realistic, a dark and gritty Batman. You know, it's it's what you sell somebody on. It's bef- I mean, it was before you know, slightly after X-Men. This was before. Before all the Marvel films came out and said, you know, you can be, you can be pretty pretty straightforward adaptation here, right? Because I mean, I think after this we got Daredevil that was, you know, he had the costume, but it was still trying to you know trying to be dark and gritty and moody and all leathery. Well, I, mean, I think, I think uh, in terms of Daredevil, uh, which again I, I kind of like, um, I don't hate. No, like I don't get why people hate that movie as much as they do. I, I, not, I don't I think it's bad. You know, oh, I don't like it, but. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but, you know, people like always like uh, talk about. Um, my brother and I were talking about this the other day. I actually don't think that there's that's as many like you know ob- morally objectionable, god awful, unwatchable superhero films as people like to make and make those out to be. Like you know, I, I don't you know, I I, I don't like X Men Three virtually at all. I don't like X Men Origins Wolverine. You know, uh, Green Lantern was was kind of a letdown. Like you know, like this that, and the other thing. But like I mean, very. Not every bad film is automatically Batman and Robin. Like, that level of just, like, you know... I think Batman and Robin still be worst. I should say that Steel's worst, but that... Okay, <laughs> Steel, okay, Steel, Steel pretty... Okay. Steel sucks, but, like, it, it, it's, it's not as common to find those kinds of movies as one, might, one, you know, one hyperactive comic book fan might make them out to be, generally. And in terms of Daredevil, I mean, I think that, like, a, a good comparison for that would be, like, Bullseye. Because he didn't have his costume, which I think both has a pretty badass costume, but, like, in the movie, he has a, he has a leather jacket, like, you know, um, they kind of took a, a crayon and wrote a bullseye on his forehead. So, uh, that, which that's I think, you know, was was a lot less common, or it wasn't as stereotypical when that movie was made. Because I remember thinking, okay, I guess they're just going to do this. And then you remember when the comics tried to copy it? They tried to give him that similar costume? Yeah, I was like, oh, this is stupid. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I still think that is that was one of the, well... We haven't really seen the Kingpin, but all that much. But I said that was one of the best adaptations of the Kingpin because I mean, that was, it was perfect. awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because like he's threatening, you know, and like he just you just feel that like he's the Kingpin. Like you feel like this, this guy is not to be messed with. Yeah, like 
flashback to the '90s show. Remember, you remember his origin when he's he he talks about growing up in the streets and how he's he's all hard. And then in this movie, you have him tell what's what's a guy's name oh, Wilson West, or something. West. West, he's like, this is something you wouldn't understand. Oh yeah. As, as he's getting ready to fight, I'm like, that that's Kingpin, right? There. That's awesome. I'm gonna have to watch that movie again. I own, I own both versions. Um, did, did you hear who's playing him in the show? Yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, that's gonna be interesting. Very interesting. A, I love him as an actor. I'm looking forward to this. Cause I'm a big Daredevil fan. I'm looking forward to seeing how they're gonna kind of make a. It would definitely work as a show. I'm interested to see how that's gonna play. I wonder if they're gonna try to go the procedural route with it. Oh, I am too, because especially like, like coming from like you know the original era of like the Foggy and Karen and Matt era to like you know and Mike. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Dude, I hope they adaptate that up, Mike. Everybody, Google Daredevil Mike Murdoch and enjoy, because that's my favorite era. That's my favorite era, but it's awesome. Um. Anyway, in regards to McGuire and Garfield, I think both Andy and Toby look like Peter. I would disagree, but Toby. But to me, Peter has a kind of everyman visual, so I almost think anyone could look like him. I disagree with Jesse about Maguire and Franco compared to Garfield and DeHaan. I feel they're all good in their own ways at being different, uh, at being better at different aspects of the characters. I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to. Um, maybe, I think maybe I said that DeHaan and Garfield, Garfield had better chemistry. Possibly. Um, I don't know. To me, Franco always seemed like he was like a little pissed off at Peter. You know, even in the first movie, before nothing <laughs> happens, he still can't. Well, I guess he comes off still as kind of envious. Of he him. certainly is in the third movie <laughs> when he's trying to kill him with pumpkin bombs. But um, he's so devious. How's why? So good. So good. <laughs> <laughs> I love that moment. That's still my favorite Franco moment of all the movies he's been in. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Um, I'm actually. I thought that he and McGuire had decent chemistry, and I think that like I think that like um. I think that, like, Gage Garfield and Dan, Dan, Dale DeHaan had better uh, – uh, uh, with the script that they were given, they were given a bit more to work with, and they come off better than I think Toby and Franco did. But that's a, I, I never had a problem with Franco as uh, Harry Gar- – I thought it was a bit too handsome for Harry Osborn, but, like, you know, that never that didn't bother me too much. He's kind of taken off into his own little stratosphere. Yeah. He, he, Franco's his own thing now. <laughs> I still want to see this is the end where like he, he plays himself as a crazy uh, uh, yeah, Michael Sis. Um, I haven't seen it either. Yeah, I've heard it's... I heard it's really funny. I've, I've seen some clips I heard, and it looks actually pretty funny. I know we're like three years too late on that movie, but... Uh, yeah, whoops. Personally, I found Harry's arc in this movie to be very rushed, uh, cramming in many of Harry's beats from the Rainbow Trilogy, but I don't think it was all bad. I disagree that Franco was working with bad material in the Rainbow movies, Though as though has as his progression across in three movies was done very well and very organically, possibly being the best character arc of all of all those movies, um, he had a good character arc. I thought. I thought that like I never thought that I never disbelieved him becoming the Goblin and going crazy and I, I never questioned. It, so I thought, I thought it was pretty good. And I think we both mentioned that like um, I never I, I was I was perfectly happy with with Terry's progression in ASM two. Um, I, I, I can see people might think it's, it's rushed, but I never felt it was rushed personally. Um, others might disagree, though. Do you think that since audiences have already seen where that character goes, that they were a little more forgiving? Like, oh, yeah, we know he's going to be a bad guy. It could be, because if you compare the two in terms of like how they become the Goblin, uh, I think Franco's... Uh, Harry Osborn, his Green Goblin, was a bit more like a Jerry Conway Green Goblin, where like you know he just becomes a bad guy and attacks Peter. 
Uh, Dale DeHaan's feels very much to me like a like a John Mark DiMatteis goblin. Where he's a bit more conniving and scheming and insane. Is that his middle name? Yeah. Huh. I never knew it. Go on. Sorry. But um, yeah, I think that they both, they both play recognizably comic booky versions of Harry's Green Goblin, which I enjoy. As far as Maguire goes, I agree that in terms of coming out of a shell, Garfield has done a much better job, but I disagree that Maguire never did it. Well, whilst it happens only slightly in the first film, I get the character's allowances since it was so early in his career as Spider-Man. And whilst Garfield did come out of his shell in one movie, the way, it, the way Raimi played it where it was as more focused on was perfectly fine. On top of that, come Spider-Man 3, Maguire's Peter, before the symbiote took control, was more outgoing, even to the point where his ego had gotten too big. I see Maguire's version uh, interpreting and focusing upon the more nerdy and shy sides of Peter's character, which were still there to assist it throughout his life. That isn't to say that Garfield's version is bad or better. I just think that both actors took particular aspects of the character and focused more upon them than others. Ult- Uh-oh. <laughs> Ultimately, it's like Michael Keaton and Christian Bale. <laughs> Oh, so fortuitous. I, yeah, I, I did not think that was going to happen. I did not mean for that to happen for us to mention that earlier. That's kind of cool. Wow, nice. Uh, yeah, he, he agrees with us. Awesome. They both embody Batman, but they're different because a character as rich as Spider-Man is open to interpretation. Now, I, really, I didn't mean this. <laughs> awesome. And when it comes to Spider-Man's humor, Maguire could evidently do it. Three video games prove that. But the scripts just didn't give him that much. The, one, the few one-liners he had in the Raymond films were done adequately. Yeah, I think that, have you played the, the, the Spider-Man video games where Maguire voiced him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, he, does a better, he, does, he does better in that than he does anything else. He was definitely given way, way more time to equip. And, um, I think he, he, does, he does do deadpan quips very well. My favorite version of – my favorite quip that he did was when uh, <laughs> Alfred Molina says, oh, you're getting on my nerves. And he says, I have an act for that. That was, that was done perfectly. If, if we had more of that, that was – that felt like – that just sings Spider-Man to me. But um, I think that uh, uh, Garfield has a lot more opportunities. Yeah, Garfield does a lot more with just his body language alone. Yeah. And, yeah, everything about him. Like, But I do agree that I think – I think they got Toby in the booth for those games, and it was like, all right, you got to do this character just in voice alone, and he sound, he just sounds like he's having more fun. Yeah, I think that, like if if, if Raimi just gave him, I don't know why he didn't just give him more quips time because that's that's freaking Spider Man. Because what's funny is Raimi is is largely a very comedic director. You know, he's known for his horror oh, movies. Yeah. If you watch his horror movies, they're pretty much comedies anyway. Like, so you, you would think that that's what. That's what he would, you know, that would be in his wheelhouse, but I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of odd. I, 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 guess, I got the feeling that like, maybe he thought that the, the, you had to take the action sequences seriously, so Spider-Man quipping all the time, you wouldn't. But, I mean, I've not had any problems with that with the uh, Garfield and Webb's movies. He says, oh, you give up now? He gets his face looks here. That's kind of funny. Moving on to Gwen. Personally, I have to disagree with Stella on some points. <laughs> you just disagree with everything we say. In the original comics, her scientific prowess was never a big deal and has been flanderized over the years in order for later incarnations, such as media adaptations, to be more developed, which is partially why I dislike the character. That's all well and good, but I wouldn't count, out, count it as part of the original character. Same thing with her being Peter's intellectual equal. I mean, if a guy invents wet fluid at age 15 from his bedroom, I kind of have to assume that he's the smartest guy in the room until proven otherwise. This being said, I had no problem with Movie Gwen being so smart, although outclassing Peter's legendary science skills to the point where she can reboot up City's power supply is really pushing it. I, I actually would agree wholeheartedly with this, that, like, uh, I think that Gwen, I, I don't have a problem with Gwen being smart. I think that her being, like, you know, Peter's equal in science, A, wasn't ever a factor in the comics, and B, it's a bit, it's a bit disconcerting. Um, you know, 
I think because it's a movie, it, it matters a lot less. But uh, Gwen, Gwen was never really known for her science until I guess the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon. Let's let's let's, let's be honest, this is Jim. Yeah, I have to say that too. Like, and with the comics, it that's just one more thing to throw onto the character who's already perfect. You know? Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to remember what issue, is, what issue number it is. I, I, I remember the issue usually, but like, uh, he says, oh, good, would you like to come to this, this science experiment with me? Of course, Peter. You, you forget your blonde buddy is a uh, science major herself. Like, that's a line. So technically she is a science major. I do. I do. I'm generally a big fan of Spider-Man being shown to be intelligent and like stories that highlight that. Right. Like the movie I thought did pretty well. Like, yeah, he get you know, going out smarts him in some instance, but he's still shown to be no slouch. You know, he's shown experimenting with stuff. And because, yeah, I think that's an aspect of the character that gets, you know, underused. Just like I want to see Batman be the detective. I want to see Spider-Man be a scientist. Oh, yes, yes. And, yes. and I think it's, it's underused pretty much across all media, you know, nowadays. The movies, even the comics. The comics haven't really shown him to be intelligent. Um, I, I, would, I, I would disagree with that because Dan Slott really amped up the whole, let me make this new toy that you can buy at your local Kmart uh, for me to beat the villain. Which, which I think is a te- it's a bit more technical, like, you know, it's plot, div- div- uh, plot devised. But well, yeah, that's, that's I, 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 that did just complete. I was thinking older stories. I completely forgot about that. Because when I think Dan Slott, I still think of Ock as Spider-Man right now. Oh, yeah. But I forgot that all that started way before that. Like Yeah. And yeah, you can say what you want about it, but he he did make an effort to show the character as intelligent. Yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely given, especially during the brand new day era where he wasn't he was anything but. But yeah, when you think about like like you know Web 100 where he has the spider armor out on the fly, and like you know other devices like from older stories, it's, it's it does seem something that has gotten away from the character. And I think Slot has done I think Slot has done a, an okay job bringing it back. Particularly when he's written with more of the heroes in the Marvel Universe, he's dumbed down dramatically. In yeah, most, most times. Yeah, in the last decade he has been. Um, I think, I think Slot's been a bit... <laughs> this is what you have in Spider-Man Crossways. I think Slot's been a bit overcompensating with it, but, like, you know, I'd rather have it than not have it overall, so I can't, I can't complain too much. Keeping with Gwen, I agree with Don that before she died, technically speaking, Gwen got more development than Mary Jane, and so far as any silver supporting character got development... However, I, uh, however, at least some of that development I feel was to her detriment. And while she changed more than Mary Jane did, I feel that I still feel that as characters unto themselves, what Mary Jane brought to the table was more interesting slash likable than Gwen back then. And of course, Mary Jane did begin to develop a hell of a lot later on. Dom's observation about Stone's Gwen being the best female comic book character in the movie is interesting. Though I feel in terms of accurately representing a character while it's also being a good movie character, Margot Kidder's Lois Lane takes the cake since she was pretty faithful to the comic books. <laughs> I disagree with that. But <laughs> I'm not going to dwell on that. I... Yeah. <laughs> no offense to her because she was probably just playing what they gave her to play, but... The, I wasn't yeah. a fan of her, her version of Lois. No. Um, I, I, I prefer the Man of Steel version of Lois. And I know that's like heresy to like anything about that movie. Yeah, you'll, you'll die for saying that. <laughs> that movie turned out to be like, that, the backlash of that movie turned out to be like, like the Vietnam of comic book fans. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Anyway, um, I, in, terms of my, in terms of my age and how I grew up and saw the character, I, again, going about the voice actor is Danny Delaney, but in terms of live action, I've actually really, I, I do remember liking Terry Hatcher's Lois Lane. Although I'm not seeing that, I'm not seeing Lois and Clark in years, so I might be, I might, I, might, I, stand, I stand ready to be corrected on that. Um, I'm sure Michael Bailey will tell you. 
<laughs> Emma Stone's Gwen, to be brutally honest, is more like a fusion, wink, wink, of a little bit of Ultimate Mary Jane, a few nuggets, <laughs> original recipe Gwen, original recipe Gwen Stacy, and an awful like like an awful lot of new embellishments by the movies. Honestly, she was essentially an original character, albeit a very likable one. I think that because because Gwen is much by and large a blank slate. I have no problems with how she came out in the movie because you do want to give a crap when she dies. So that was perfectly fine that, that she was so different because I think if, if anybody's going to say, like, well, she was just like she was in comic books, that's not true. But it works great for the movie and for a new audience, making her so impactful that they did. Like you guys, I feel sorry for whatever love interest follows Stone in the next installment. If they're still doing four movies, it'd probably be fair to develop the next love interest over two movies to give her as much screen time as Stone had. Personally, I was hoping slash expected that Gwen was going to live in this movie and die in the next one, with MJ being introduced in this movie, thus we get something akin to the ending of ASM 22 to end the trilogy. Now that this is, now that this is the case, now that, now that that isn't the case, I don't know what to expect. Although, when Stella brought up Miles Warren, my mind friggin' blew up. If they do four movies, that's how you could handle Peter's love life. <laughs> with, with I think you could still have that ending. I, it, he's, uh, he's referring to the ending where she closes the door, right? Close the door? Yes. <laughs> because, I mean, I, I think he's still going to be grieving in the next film. I think he's, he's going to be grieving the entire film, pretty much. Yeah, I, I imagine the way they're going to advertise the movie, like, you know, Peter Bar- Spider- Spider-Man, maybe they're all happy. Peter's markedly more serious and darker and different, as you might expect just generally. I mean, the, and then, he, yeah, he's going he's gonna to be attracted, and he's going to have to reconcile allow his feelings. Because yeah. I honestly, after she died in this film, in the theater, I half expected them to do the Spider-Man No More ending. Well, they kind of did because they mentioned that like, he was gone for several months, but uh, he came, he came back at the end, so never mind. Yeah, but, like I expected the ending to be him walking away from the trash can. Like that would have been awesome. That would have been great. Yeah, they, they probably would have done it because like Raimi beat them to that, but that would have been a great moment for it. I, I would have liked to see it. And then you know have him have his gr- dramatic return in the next film. But <laughs> I, I like what they did. Yeah, I don't know. It was very well handled. That that was by far my favorite moment. As for Gwen's death itself, maybe this is me being callous, but I really can't sympathize with the opinion that people wanted Gwen to live in the movies. Gwen Stacy, no matter how, no matter what universe or media adaptation has to die, in the same way that Uncle Ben has to die or the spider has to bite Peter, her death is incredibly important to Peter's character in the, in the comics. No character or actor is bigger than the mythology, although I get that people like the character enough to not want to see her go, but that was kind of the point in making people like her in the first place. As soon as Gwen was announced to be in the movie, not only did that virtually did virtually everyone think she was going to die, excuse me, but as a fan, I downright expected it. As Stella said, it was more tra- tragic slash impactful slash satisfying that she died when they were in love as opposed to them just breaking up. I agree. You guys brought up that in the article about moving to Gwen's death being a case of women in refrigerators, and for me, I think that's kind of iffy. I think when it comes to women in the refrigerators, I think Gwen is a bit more of an exceptional case. Whilst her death is an example of that trope, back in 1973, it wasn't adhering to that trope because before Gwen, women in refrigerators wasn't really something that which existed before superhero comic books. The fact that Gwen died in the comic books back when there wasn't a problem in and of itself, the problem was that it opened the door for other creators to then kill up important supporting characters, and disproportionately, they chose female characters slash love interests. Hence why in the modern times, it's a problem. And I agree. Yeah, I think that's an idea of or that's a case of the origination of the trope getting mixed up, you know, with with what it what it has allowed to pass. 
like people thinking, oh, the Matrix movie's crappy because of bullet time was overused. So, no, no, it, it was because of the, you know, after the fact. Like, or, or anime suspects all of this is fighting. <laughs> that doesn't mean the Z sucks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I mean, like, you know, when 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 Gail Simone coined the term "women in refrigerators," which is references uh, that Green Lantern issue. Oh man! Like that that is, that the point of that term is like this is not too far. Where this is just so casually accepted accepted by it. And, and Gwen, her death is actually for Peter's character, which is which is which reflects badly off of her character. But that's how drama works in storytelling, you know. And again, it, it doesn't it doesn't automatically negate all the good her character did previously. Additionally, I wouldn't criticize Gwen's death in the same way that I would later examples of female characters' deaths, partially because it was such a good story and partially because it facilitated so much growth from the franchise thereafter that it was a worthy slash necessary sacrifice. I mean, without without her death, Peter, MJ, and even Harry wouldn't be the same, and we wouldn't have things like the Hobgoblin, Ben Riley, Kane, Black Cat, etc. As far as the movie goes, I would would not also bring it as sexist, Precisely due to its ad- adapting that story, if they include Gwen Stacy and the most important thing that the character ever did was die, therefore they have to do the death story, and therefore they have to kill her off. I also 100% agree that just because Peter was ultimately proven right in wanting Gwen to leave him alone, that it doesn't automatically make things sexist. In real life, it's perfectly possible for someone, man or woman, to make a bad decision, and for someone else, again, man or woman, to have advised them against it. On a final note about Gwen, I think Spider-Man did kill Gwen in the movie because unlike the comics, it was slightly less tragic because if you think about it, there was nothing else he could do. She was going to hit the ground anyway. In the comics, though he had several different ways of saving her, but happened to make a wrong choice. I'm not complaining about the scene because I liked it a lot, just adding to my voice in the the discussion. Nothing much else to say apart from from two questions. Jesse. When you say secret identities are a thing of the past, do you mean in terms of a love interest slash supporting characters? Because obviously the general public didn't know who Batman, Sp- Superman, or Spider-Man were. I disagree that the secret, secret identities should be a thing of the past in comic books, though. In that medium, they still serve a big purpose. I think that, yeah, in the comics are much more common, but to, you know, layman's who see the film, they're, I think they're usually dispensed with just due to suspension of disbelief and in comics you can get away with a lot more because you know we, we don't hear the character's voice we don't hear them sounding exactly the same we don't you know as, as good as an artist is we don't at most characters look the same so you you kind of give them more more wiggle room to to imagine between the panels and everything that's going on that could conceivably mistake or allow a character to mistake or be in disguise a little better I think so too. I think that like um, the, the the excuse like you know oh you must not know my secret identity because you know that'll put you in danger. Someone not knowing your someone knowing your identity doesn't mean that everyone knows your identity. You must if you're going to trust somebody. And I think that like that does it is it is a bit play out to have like the love interest not known because it makes it, this, the hero look like a jerk. But um, I, I think that like it's it's an endless source of story potential just to to have a, a secret identity by and large. Because I, I love I love that that. Tripping superhero comics. Are you gr- glad they brought it back with Spider-Man? I, I have no problem with Gwen knowing. Oh, you're, oh, you're like you know. In the comics, when they brought the secret identity back after a couple years, I thought it was a, a mistake at the time for them to do that because I think that like you know announcing to everybody in the world, having it hit everybody at once, it, w- it was obviously a stunt, and like it, it just it was an interesting idea, but like it's not my ideal situation. In my opinion, like 
like I, I would like to. <laughs> I would like for there to be a story where, you know, like, like gradually Flash knows, gradually uh, Robbie knows, gradually char- characters learn along the way. And if their identity should ever be blown, that should be a, that should be a, a, a series ender, in my opinion. Dude, R- Robbie, to me, he's, he's, he's Commissioner Gordon. He knows. Oh, yeah, he knows. They, 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 they've had it more than once. In the Civil War, he pretty much said that he, he always has known. Yeah, well, yeah, because uh, Jameson asked him, he's like, you, did you know? And I forget what he says, but yeah, it's. it's how, how can I not know? Yeah. Yeah, like I think the Jameson issue, uh, where was probably the best, the the most well done of that whole lot of him. No, that was like one of the last issues they did. Yeah, yeah, and it was like one of the throwaway satellite titles. Right. I, I think there's there's a lot more you can do with that. I think that like um. Do you think he's a character that that needs a secret identity? Because like you look at Captain America and Iron Man. Actually, I think Captain America. Up until very recently, still had a secret identity. Technically, he didn't uh, around Civil War because I remember like when he was killed, that like his identity was public. But I mean, Iron Man. I don't think he's had a secret identity in how long? He revealed it before Civil War. I, I learned that after the fact, but like because uh, he was Secretary of State before that, or, or something, wasn't he? Something like that, yeah. Uh, like by and large, like like the bodyguard thing was the thing, but now, but then like eventually he re- revealed it for reasons. Um, I'm trying to remember other. But I do think Marvel's characters on the whole have or I think, a lot less secret identities than, than DC's. The, the, the reason why I like Spider-Man the most of all the Marvel characters is that Spider-Man is, to me is like, feels like the most like a superhero. Everybody else has their own problems that, that, that they dispense with the tropes like secret, secret identities. I remember um, – actually, I was listen, listening to um, um, You Can Relate where you and Nick talked about X-Men and when exactly that, that – uh, it was revealed that Xavier's school for the Gifted Youngsters was actually <laughs> a school for mutants. I think that was done around the Morrison era, around the early 2000s, because by and large, the X-Men were saying, you know, these mutant characters, and they didn't know that, like, like, like um, uh, that's why, that's why, um, when Scott Summers formed X-Factor, he did still wore masks. Now you have, you know, Jean Grey without a mask, you know. It was that late? Really? Wow. I think so. I, 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 read, I read the issue where Xavier publicly came out as a mutant, and so oh, this, this affects the entire school. I read that, so it was it was late late nineties, early thousands at that point. Interesting. Um, and Daredevil uh, recently uh, admitted, "Okay, fine, I'm Daredevil now. Leave him alone." Uh, as Matt Murdock. But has his identity been out like his, times? his identity? Yeah. <laughs> uh, even like the Silver Age people knew his identity, but like um, his identity has been blown. Uh, publicly, like, the Wade run had it where, like, you know, people would he would say, "I'm not Daredevil, I'm not Daredevil, I'm not Daredevil." I mean, people would like, like, generally think he was, but like, you know, be too busy to care. Yeah. And like, at, at the end of Wade's run, he was forced to publicly say, "Okay, I really am Daredevil," and then move to San Francisco. So there's that. Which I think that's because I think Matt Murdock has actually a very good secret identity. Who would think that a blind guy is Daredevil? But they've got yeah, because like. It's kind of like Spider-Man's spider sense. Daredevil doesn't go around talking about my, you know, radar sight because radar hearing because I'm blind. Yeah, I, I, I was thought he had a really, really cool secret identity, but alas. But yeah, I think Marvel's street-level heroes work better to have secret identities than obviously like Captain America or, you know, the Avengers. Does uh, an Arrow? Do people know that Oliver Queen is is a? Uh, I guess they wouldn't. No. Um, not a very small group that grows into a larger group. He also he he wears you know the hood and then he eventually gets a mask, yes. thanks to the Flash. Hopefully the beard. <laughs> dude, dude, uh, the very first episode he has the beard. Sweetness. Uh, I remember in, in Smallville. Uh, I think it was in the last season. Oliver Queen came out as as the Green Arrow. 
Uh, I, don't, I don't know why, but he did. And I don't, I don't think that was ever public knowledge of the comics. I think he was always... I, I freaking remember, like, pre 52, Oliver Queen ran and won as mayor of Star City and was also Green Arrow. How? <laughs> DC, D, I, I'm not a DC guy, but their their whole, like, secret identity, char- like, their whole character interactions is so weird. It's never great. It's like Batman's on the Justice League, but he's an urban legend. Yeah, thanks, O'Neill. <laughs> it's like what? what? <laughs> right, right. Even like you know, like like, like Nightwing is out and he's blown, and no one does anything about it, or whatever. Um, it's like, hey, the guy that raised Bruce Wayne. Wait a minute. They didn't do. Or the guy who was raised by Bruce Wayne. <laughs> also, where do you guys see the future of the franchise going? Not in terms of the purported spinoffs, but in terms of the third and fourth movies. Personally, I want a Sinister Six versus Spider-Man movie and a new version of Mary Jane, but I don't know if either of those are doable at this point. But a Redux of Venom could happen. I I I still hold that the Sinister Six are going to fight him in one movie. I don't know if that's going to be the you know the purported fourth film, which I don't even know is still happening. Um, but if they do, I don't. Other than that, I don't know a villain that could conceivably go after him. Like, would you really, if you're making a third film, like would you really want to redo the, the you know Venom after already redoing the Green Goblin and potentially redoing Doc Ock? Oh, they got to do Doc Ock in this franchise. Doc Ock is too awesome of a character to not do. Um, I'll see Venom done better, but I think in the next film, I think it's Sinister Six because they built it up. I think that that could work well. Um, sometimes villains are like kind of weird because like you, you, you can say that they're recognizable, but like you know, a lot of them are kind of a stretch to make it as a one one film. Besides, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna end a series on like a third film or a fourth film, he's already fought, you know, the Green Goblin in the second film. And he's fought the Sinister Six, you know, all these powerful villains teamed up. I, other than going, like, with Norman, revealing him to be alive, I don't really know how else you could top it. Unless you just wanted to take a character and Clone. redo him, com- redo him completely and make him a lot better. Like, I, yeah, like Craven, if they wanted to, even then you'd have to have somebody else, some other linchpin for the emotional series. Like, you could, you could kind of, you could probably do Craven's, uh, Last hunt, that'd be a cool, cool visual to see him get buried and beaten. But I think they kind of do a thing where like the villain that's a bit less concentrated on, you know, it's just a Sinister Six, and like you, you care more about the Peter Spider-Man dynamic, like it is in the comics. Because at this point now, I don't think like the villain is necessarily what people go to see for these films. It's, it's kind of like just like Spider-Man swinging around, fighting some freak. Oh yeah, I agree. Well, I've gone along. I've gone on for long enough. Thanks for taking time out to give us your thoughts on ASM2, guys. I look forward to the next episode as always. Regards, Alex. P.S. Oh, wow. While Raimi's will always be my favorite, this is probably the best Spider-Man costume I ever put to screen. As if he's leaped off the page. I would agree. I, I'm actually uh, before we recorded, I was at Walmart and I seen a lot of Spider-Man ASM2 paraphernalia, and I love that costume so much. That is that is an amazing costume. I agree, and. I'm kind of sad because I remember hearing an interview with Webb where he said that you would you would see why he changed costumes and you'd see both costumes in this film. I heard that too, yeah. And, and but I, no. I'm, I'm sure it's probably on the cutting room floor. You either see you probably see his old costume shredded or something, which I had no problem because you could just say that that was the prototype, you know, and he changed the design. No problem there, you know. But oh, I should also mention that like I, I did see this at Barnes and Noble. There's a uh, a tie-in comic between that takes place between Asims one and two, and at the very end, Gwen does start designing like like what will eventually be the new suit. I do remember that. That's cool. Okay, I might have to pick that up or read it somewhere. It's, it's in one of the, the uh, collections. But um, yeah. That, that, thank you very much. Those were our extended thoughts on Asim two, as well as uh, Sailor Moon. 
no, yeah, thank you very much. And I, 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 I do enjoy doing these kind of one-off stories. It's kind of fun to kind of sit down and just freestyle about whatever comes to mind from the fans. Um, yeah, I, I don't, this is, I think this is the third month in a row where we've done that second episode that's been recorded. I don't intentionally do that, uh, for as episodes. This isn't a bi-monthly podcast now, but you know what? If there's something to talk about, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I think if, if it, if it hits our fancy, you know, I, I don't want to try to keep it in. Like, hey, you know, if we, if we get emails, we're, we're going to be sure to read them. Absolutely, yeah, no, so you guys. Have any other thoughts about this kind of stuff or any uh, thoughts about anything else in general? Phil, right, na- r- right now, Daniel and Alex are like, oh, yeah, challenge accepted. <laughs> what do you 5, mean? 5,000-letter <laughs> email. About, like, Keaton versus Bale. <laughs> You're really on top of That kind of stuff you might want to leave for, like, the Facebook page. But, like, if you have a whole discussion's worth of what we've done an episode on, absolutely. Uh, and I, I'll be, I'll, we'll be interested to look forward to how uh, the new Seven Moon show and um, ASM3 will uh, end up. So, uh... I might as well do the, uh, I was going to do the uh, copyright stuff. I might just plug that stuff in later on because I enjoy that stuff. I'll probably, I'll probably get the last season of Save the Moon Crew because I got it wrong when I did it last time. <laughs> uh, yeah, next month, again, uh, we will do episodes, Dragon Ball Z, I'm trying to remember stuff on my head. Original DBC episodes 238 through 244, I think. It's a lot. Maybe, maybe less. Maybe 243. I think it's like seven episodes or so. But we were covering that. I uh, I can't believe that we got to episode 30 without any kind of realization of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm happy that we're not pod video yet. <laughs> um, thank you for DBC Kai. By the way, I should mention this now. Um, uh, com has interesting articles about that. that, that the Boo Saga of, of uh, DBC Kai, there are different versions that are being released in different countries. Like, so, like, like, well, like some stories will take three episodes, some will take two episodes, and they're kind of like deciding which filler to keep and which not. And um, some things are, are being changed, and, and that might impact how Funimation will dub their version of TV Sky once it to the States. But so it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting stuff. I think they've actually released an episode about it, so I'll actually go tell people to go to Cause and Shoe and um, uh, check out their episode discussing that. And, um, as well as the new, the new uh, intro theme for Deep Busy Kai, which I believe, if I'm not, I'm not showing Jesse yet, I'm pretty sure that's on the Facebook page. So check that kind of stuff out. We'll probably go for it uh, on the month of J- July. Um, so, yeah, that is our feedback episode for June. Uh, we will see you guys in July. Um, before or after Comic-Con, probably before, since Comic-Con is a little bit later. But uh, we'll, hopefully I'll get scouted this year. And uh, we'll definitely hit you guys up for that. A- uh, Jesse, any final thoughts? Uh, <laughs> in this non-review episode that we've been- um, just just don't ever cast somebody based on the fact that Krillin is short and yes, Troyer is short. Yes, exactly. I'm not sh- I'm not sure if if uh, that was in the recording, but uh, I'll have to hopefully keep it in there. Oh, if it's not, then my final th- thought thought would be. Keaton all the way. I'm bringing that debate back. 20 years too late. 30 years too late almost. Well, have you seen the trailer for Birdman? Oh, yes. It looks amazing. That was cool. Uh, before we get distracted anymore, <laughs> you've been listening to The Next Dimension, uh, Sailor Moon and Spider-Man podcast, apparently. Uh, you've been listening to Moon Prison podcast. We'll see you guys next month in July. Adios. Thank you for listening to The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. You can find the show and leave feedback at dbznextdimension.lipson.com 
or write in for emails at dpcnextdimension at hotmail.com. If you like what you're doing, please leave in feedback at iTunes or like us on Facebook. Sailor Moon, Sailor Moon R, Sailor Moon S, Sailor Moon Super S, Sailor Moon Sailor Stars, Codename Sailor V, and Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon are all owned by Toy Animation and Naoko Takeuchi. Spider-Man is owned by Marvel Entertainment and Sony Pictures. Sailor Moon is created by Naoko Takeuchi. Spider-Man is created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditka.